johnstrausslaw.com. Alex. Ed. Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about... Well, it may be the devil in 
Morning, mutineers. This is the Labor and Love Show, and uh, I'm the bee. Now, more than anything, we're going to have to serve somebody. Like today, January 21st, 2017. Who are you going to serve today? Are you going to sit down? Not join the marches that are taking place all over the country, all over the world? to protest the incoming American president, the Donald and his gang of thieves, let's put it that way, and his policies, you're going to have to serve somebody. This is the Labor and Love Show. Let's play a couple more opening tunes and we'll get on with our schedule for today. What are we talking about on this first day of the Trump presidency? Sing one more song and we'll have an intermission. I dreamed I saw Joe last night. Live as you from 
capital of providing liquidity to institutions or, or to individual investors, primarily inst institutions. That's where the money is made. And, and is this something like when you're doing all this trading for other people, it, is that something that is I've just never fully understood. Is that a completely separate operation? Is there information going back between people who are doing the trades and the ones who are taking the bets? Or well, yeah. There's. I mean, there are Chinese so-called Chinese walls that are required to be established at every brokerage firm, so that the uh, there are in, what they call information barriers. Is a better you know term that most people would understand to sort of wall off uh, a, a brokerage firm from taking advantage of information that he has as to what clients are basically going to trade or not going to trade. So there are separate, there are separate Fight the power! 
to bounce with tails and that's a ride. Designed to fill your mind now that you realize the prize arrives. We, we got, got the pump the stuff to make it tough. From the heart, it's a start, a work of art to revolutionize. Make a change, nothing strange. People, people, we are the same. No, we're not the same, cause we don't know the game. What we need is awareness. We can't get careless. You say, what is this? My beloved, let's get down to business. Mental self-defense of fitness. The rest is show. Hollywood. Yeah, Lux presents Hollywood indeed. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is the B, and we're on the Labor and Love Show coming at you from 2781 21st Street. Um, and this is the show where we tell you how it is labor and love. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. 
And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Never but never let anyone be president who is not a friend of labor. That's the first day of the Donald's reign. Some people are saying, well, let's just wait and see what's going to happen. He and his collection of thieves have made it eminently clear what's going to happen unless they all have religious experiences and wake up tomorrow determined to do the public good. I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. So what do we got going on today on this 21st day of January 2017, a day of marches and protests? Hope to see you in one uh, this afternoon, 3 o'clock, the Women's March. Workers strike against Trump on the very first day of his reign. Workers go on strike against him. We've got an economist who talks about trickle-up economics, flood-up economics. Is it really true that eight billionaires own as much wealth as the bottom half of all the people in the world 300 billion people and those 8 billionaires own as much wealth? We'll look at that claim. Linguist George Lakoff gets into a very rewarding discussion about how unions, liberals, got job by Donald Trump. How he made them think that unions, for example, are against them. The Ed Secretary, Betsy DeVos Fox, who Trump wants to be in charge of the education hen house. We've got Radio Labor and Labor Radio. We got the first chapter of Fred Glass's Golden Lands Working Hands, a history of the California labor movement. And we got this day in labor history, this day and so much more. We started out today with, you got to serve somebody. For example, if you sit down today and you don't get up and go out and march, you're serving Donald Trump. Remember, if you're sitting down, you'll get you'll get charged with sitting, standing up for sitting down. There's no neutrality. You can't be neutral on a moving train. Okay, well, let's get started. We had Bob Dylan there with uh, You Gotta Serve Somebody, and we have our featured artist today, Joan Baez, whose birthday was the 9th of January, singing her inimitable version of Joe Hill, Ralph Chaplin's song about Joe Hill, labor organizer, and how he was jobbed by the Copper Kings. Um, A song, Long Black Veil, kind of tells the story of Joe Hill. Uh, We might play that one later on. The circumstances are pretty similar. And last, we have the inimitable Chuck D with Fight the Power. 
Chuck D and Public Enemy, fight the power. Come on, y'all. Fight the power. Okay. We had a little bit of Bernie Madoff there. And I want to play some more of that. Because uh, we'll, we'll play it when we talk about the uh, eight billionaires. Okay. First of all, workers strike to protest Trump. There is power in our unity, they say. Workers across the country walked off their jobs and staged actions Friday to protest the inauguration of one of the most anti-worker presidents in modern history. And believe me, that's saying something. The U.S. presidents almost to the man are virulently anti-labor from Calvin Coolidge who said the business of America is business. As he was being sworn in around midday, dining hall workers at Northeastern University walked out. The one-day strike was planned with support from students, some of whom walked with workers as a sign of solidarity. The group marched for two miles along the Boston Common. Workers in Minnesota and California shared similar messages. The St. Paul Federation of Teachers held a rally Thursday night at a high school that enrolls immigrants and other students new to the city in order to, in the words of the union, protect our unions and our public schools. It also called for St. Paul and its public schools to declare themselves sanctuary. On January 20th, Donald Trump's inauguration day, janitors in the Twin Cities, that's Minneapolis and St. Paul, who clean Home Depot stores in the Twin Cities, will go out on strike against their cleaning contractor to protest their poverty wages and Donald Trump's anti-worker agenda. The first strike against Trump in the country since his election. The two founders of Home Depot have donated millions of dollars to Trump, and one of Home Depot's major investors supports Trump. Home Depot uses the Trump model of business for its janitorial services, using subcontractors that hire immigrant workers and who sometimes face lawsuits for wage theft. And in California... UAW Local 2865, which represents graduate students across the University of California, teamed up with the ILWU Local 10 for a work protest Friday. Many other unions are planning to take part Saturday in the Women's March on Washington, including members of 1199 SEIU, United Healthcare Workers East, the largest healthcare workers in the country. So a storm of protest against the Donald. Focus in on Betsy DeVos here. Of all the reprehensible appointments that Trump has made, this is one of the most reprehensible. As I said, Betsy DeVos Fox 
being put in charge of the education in the house. These are our kids, ladies and gentlemen. These are our kids. This woman is going to be in charge of the federal programs that are supposed to be serving our public schools. This is on the socialistworker.org website. The woman who Donald Trump is putting in charge of the nation's public schools didn't attend public schools, didn't send her children to public schools, and has never worked in a public school. Her name is Betsy DeVos. And her brother is the notorious Eric Prince, who was the president and CEO of Blackwater, one of the major contracting firms supplying security and other services to um, the United States government in Iraq and Afghanistan. Trump has chosen Betsy DeVos, a, million, a billionaire heiress, anti-gay bigot, and right-wing political donor, to be Secretary of Education. The only connection DeVos has had to education is using her wealth to destroy public schools and replace them with a competitive free market system of charter schools and vouchers. In a prepared statement for her confirmation hearing on Tuesday, DeVos made it clear that she knows nothing about teaching and learning and that she is banking on the idea of the mechanism of choice alone to improve the nation's schools. These are the things that haven't worked in government and now she's going to, or in business, now she's applying them. This is part of the vast right-wing conspiracy to take public funds and put them into private pockets. Devoid of any concept what a great school might look like on the inside, she and those like her cling to the concepts that empowering schools to leave fail parents to leave failing schools means their children will all find themselves in schools that meet their needs. She spent one billion on charter schools, argued that Mission's public schools should be closed entirely and replaced by voucher-supported schools. The bottom line The bottom line here, of course, besides the privatization, is that Betsy DeVos really wants to push for public support of parochial schools that is based on uh, religious concepts. DeVos knows her agenda is unpopular. She sees her role in education as a way to advance God's kingdom. Oh, boy. She knows her agenda is unpopular, as we said, which is why during the confirmation hearing, instead of defending it openly, she repeatedly dodged questions about privatization or the use of public funds for religious education. 
When Bernie Sanders asked her about making public higher education free, she responded, that's an interesting idea, then added, nothing is free. (laughs) Nothing is free, including your charter schools. You're going to have to take money from somewhere to get it. We should never forget that when many thought President Obama would appoint an educator such as Linda Darling-Hammond, he instead elevated someone a little like DeVos from the business world with no education credentials, but with experience promoting the privatization of schools. Arnie Duncan. Duncan declared when 7,000 teachers were fired following the Katrina disaster in Louisiana, he said, I think the best thing that happened to the education system in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. Ladies and gentlemen, in the headhouse, we've got a fox, or at least he wants to put a fox in the henhouse. Well, what can we expect? Labor and love. Well, well, let's get on with some of our other shows, um, with some of our other uh, music here. Here's Joan Baez singing on the occasion of the bombing of a church, a black church in Birmingham, Alabama. Come round by my side and I'll sing you a song. I'll sing it so softly it'll do no one wrong. On Birmingham Sunday the blood ran And the choir kept singing of freedom That cold autumn morning, no eyes saw the sun And Daddy May Collins, her number was one In an old Baptist church there choir kept singing of freedom The clouds they were dark and the autumn wind blew And Denise McNair brought the number to two The falcon of death was a creature they knew And the choir kept singing of freedom The church it was crowded and no one could see that Cynthia Wellesley's dark number was three Her prayers and her feelings would shame you and me and the choir kept singing 
Wann wird man je 
hört man je verstehen. Und sagt, wo die Soldaten sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt, wo die Soldaten sind, was ist geschehen? Sagt, wo die Soldaten sind, über Gräber weht der Wind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind. Blumen blühen im Sommerwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Und sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind. Wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, Mädchen fluchten sie geschwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je One, two. Been living on old park benches. Brother, hasn't it been fun? But you remember me from the trenches. I fought in World War One. Yeah, you saw us off at the troop train, smiling a brave goodbye. But where were you when we came home to claim our Blessings of their daddy's pride Well, the wars may change, but not so The glaze in the young boy's eyes When they cry out for their mamas In the hours before they
And I don't want to moralize But somehow I thought we deserved the best For the way we threw away our lives Cause we all believed in something Though it wasn't very clear But I know it wasn't rats in a hospital room And a broken down Still he doesn't want to die Cause he'd prefer to go on fighting And let his baby brother know That the next time round when the call comes out It's hell no we won't go There'll be no World War III Okay, three Joan Baez um, tunes there. <clears throat> that last one was Where's My Apple Pie, song of uh, U.S. veterans who, when they come home, are treated sometimes with hostility from their own brothers and sisters, but with indifference by their government. If anyone should receive the full favor of the government. It's those people. Where's my apple pie? Before that, we had Sock Me About the Blumenzind, her uh, rendering of Pete Seeger's Where Have All the Flowers Gone into German, which somehow makes it all that more touching, I think. Uh, we need to know that... Uh, Germany has always had a beautiful um, humanitarian tradition, culturally and every other way, um, that's been sort of wiped out by the events of the last century. Where have all the flowers gone? And before that, she had her beautiful song about the bombings in Birmingham and how the people, no matter how bad it got, how they lost these four little girls, kept on singing about freedom. Joan Baez. 
Okay, we'll talk some more about Joan Baez and about some of the other features that we mentioned at the top of the show. But I want to play our labor news wires when we can review and radio labor. So listen up. This is what's happening all around the world and the U.S. Workers Independent News, we can review. I'm Doug Cunningham. I believe in this moment we can make our tomorrows. I believe in the girls who came before us, who made history. I believe in dreams, hard work and equality. An historic women's march on Washington will draw at least 200,000 people standing together in diversity and solidarity for protection of our rights on Saturday, January 21st. Organizers say the Women's March on Washington will send a bold message to our new administration on their first day in office and also to the world that women's rights are human rights. We stand together, recognizing that defending the most marginalized among us is defending all of us. The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers said Friday they will file a petition with the National Labor Relations Board for a union representation election at Boeing's North Charleston, South Carolina plant. Approximately 2,850 production workers would be eligible to vote. The IAM postponed a union election that was scheduled in 2015 after what the union describes as unprecedented political interference on the part of South Carolina lawmakers and the rampant spread of misinformation among Boeing workers. But the union says this time there will be a vote. American Postal Workers Union President Mark Demonstein says the U.S. Postal Service remains threatened by some who want to privatize it, and he says the people have to join the union in fending off privatization so America can retain universal postal service. Demonstein says preserving postal service for the American people is not and should not be a partisan political issue. we got a lot of people around the country on both sides of the political aisle who look at the post office as they should as a nonpartisan issue, something that the people of this country have a right to. And need and let's face it if postal services go private if postal services are degraded in many cases the areas that get hit the hardest are rural america general motors says it will invest another one billion dollars in u.s auto plants in 2017 that is on top of the 2.9 billion dollars in u.s investments gm announced last year united auto workers vice president cindy estrada says the gm announcement emerged as a result of the 2015 collective bargaining agreement with the uaw estrada says the uaw is pleased about the additional investment and the union will continue to work with GM to bring more product manufacturing to the U.S. She says that through the hard work and quality products UAW workers build, UAW GM members, their families, and their communities will benefit. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Solidarity News on Radio Labour. 
This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 20th, 2017. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, labor in the United States vows to fight mass deportations as Donald Trump becomes president. The international labor movement presents a plan for creating millions of jobs. Why collective bargaining is needed to combat wage stagnation. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. The specter of mass deportation is absolutely terrifying. That is Richard Trumka, the president of the largest labor federation in the United States, the AFL-CIO. He was speaking ahead of the inauguration of Donald Trump as the president of the U.S. He is especially concerned about mass deportations called for by Mr. Trump. There are an estimated 11 million undocumented migrants in the U.S. They have about 5 million children, many of whom were born in the country. Many of the people who live and work in this great country are frightened. They're scared. And I share their concern. You see, Donald Trump campaigned on mass deportation, on building walls, on imposing religious litmus tests. And make no mistake about it, those proposals are a violation of our founding principles and our basic humanity. Many are concerned that raids, detentions, and worse will occur immediately after the president-elect takes office. You see, when it comes to immigration policy, we at the AFL-CIO took strong exception to the Obama administration's enforcement policies. And Mr. Trump is threatening something much worse, escalating the pace and the number of deportations, sending armed agents into our neighborhoods and workplaces, and to arrest members of our unions and our communities. The specter of mass deportation is absolutely terrifying. The men and women who live and who work here, who stand in line with us at the grocery store, and whose children attend our schools. What he has proposed will tear at the very fabric of our society and our values. And we will not stand for it. We'll resist it with everything that we have, everywhere that we are, every way that we can. And we refuse to be divided into us versus them. As the United Nations predicts an increase in global unemployment, the international labor movement is providing ideas for job growth. Radio Labor's senior correspondent, Seamarie Ainsborough, reports. A new report by the International Trade Union Confederation shows that investing in physical infrastructure such as bridge building or investing in caring for people such as the elderly could create more than 40 million new jobs. The ITUC is the organization which represents national labor centers at the world level. The report looked at six countries, including South Africa, China, Brazil, and India. 
A previous study of OECD countries showed that an investment of 2% of a country's GDP would increase employment by up to 6%. Most of the new jobs would be taken up by women, but male employment would also be increased. Sharon Burrow is the ITUC's General Secretary. Investing in the care economy, 2% of GDP, part of that social protection floor, you can actually invest in the jobs that will free women to participate in the, in the uh, labour market, that will actually engage women in jobs in care, that will actually enable women to be freed from the oppression of private care, where it's actually been taken into the home and is so much, in terms of domestic work, a symbol of oppression. 2% in seven countries, you get 21 million jobs, formal jobs. That's worth having. The ITUC report also highlighted the extent of gender bias in economic thinking. Spending on physical infrastructure, which employs mainly men, is seen as an investment. But spending on caring for people, which provides jobs for women, is seen as a cost. This is Seymour Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Labour representatives at the World Economic Forum, taking place in Davos, Switzerland, January 17th to 20th, are calling on the government and corporate elite there to pay attention to the huge gap between corporate profits and what workers earn. Philip Jennings, the General Secretary of Uni Global Union, spoke at one of the forum's sessions. Uni represents some 20 million workers in 900 unions around the world. Its members work in the skills and services sectors. Mr. Jennings was asked about stagnant wages by the session moderator, Megan Murphy, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. When we look in the U.S. and we look at 4.7% unemployment, one of the biggest mysteries, which everyone is trying to solve, is why we haven't seen the consequent wage growth that we would expect when we see such a tight labor market. Why do we see this phenomenon? And this is something that everyone is grappling with. It's pretty clear. It's very clear. Tell me what your answer is. There's no mystery about it. The McKinsey report that came out looking at the development of corporate profits during the course of the last 30 years were very clear. They called them a spectacular period. It's been 30 years of feast and not famine for them. The share of wages is at at an all-time post-war low. The income distribution mechanism, particularly in the United States of America, is bust. When union density falls, when collective bargaining falls, when the ability of working people to negotiate a wage increase is taken away, is busted, is legislated out of existence, don't be surprised to see this trend. Income gravitating to the top 1-10% and the share of income going to the, uh, to the bulk of the, of the workforce is not moving. The mechanism is bust. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,300 stories our volunteers collected last week. Our top story section included links to news about the repression of garment unions in Bangladesh, the growing resistance to an attempt to shut down independent unions in Kazakhstan, and the labor movement's preparations for the World Economic Forum. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Crown lawyers in Canada continued their months-long wage strike. A couple of one-day wage strikes last week brought the Egyptian total for the year to almost 1,800. 
Chinese migrant workers walked off the job over unpaid wages. In New Zealand, dockers were out over work schedules. The long-running chemical workers strike in the United States saw a number of escalations last week as the union continued to increase the pressure for a settlement. And in Kenya, pretty much everyone in the public sector seemed to be on strike as they attempted to enforce agreements signed with the government in 2013. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the progress towards gender wage equality being made in Sweden, a union push for more women in the labor force in Singapore, a union campaign against sexual harassment in Trinidad and Tobago, and of course, union preparations around the world for marches in solidarity with American women as Trump takes office in the United States. The Health and Safety Newswire we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the increased number of firefighter deaths and injuries in the United Kingdom as cuts to the fire service take effect, yet another assault on an Australian public transport driver, the news that last year one Nepali migrant worker died every day in Malaysia, and the deaths of at least 20 Iranian firefighters in a single fire. Currently, Labor Start is running six online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was our World Labor Work site. As we always tell you, There's always labor actions going on somewhere in the world. Every day. Okay, and you can take that back through history. The workplaces where oppression comes down, where the rubber meets the road. The workplace, the arrangement that you make, that you have at your job, how much time you're going to get for selling your life. How much you're going to be able to do your work in a calm and relaxed situation that supports its workers, doesn't attack them, doesn't try to take things away. I saw this article this week by a linguist named George Lakoff. And... Um, Lakoff sort of deals with, I guess, what we call public metaphors. Um, How people communicate and how they communicate effectively in the public uh, domain. And he says here, he says here that conservatives are much more concerned about how people think, right? How they think on a basic day-to-day level. Okay, and progressives are generally 
in the public eye, you're going to study a, a liberal person, a person with more money, or a progressive person. You'll study political science, law, public policy, economic theory, but you're never going to wind up studying marketing. Okay? You're not going to study cognitive science or neuroscience. And he, he says um, that progressive people believe in enlightened reason. He argued that reason is like seeing a logical proof. And so he says that by just repeating these formulas, like crooked Hillary, said Hillary didn't do anything crooked, but he just kept saying it, and people started to believe it. The campaign assumed that since Trump attacked Latinos and Latino le leaders didn't like Trump, then all Latinos would vote for Hillary, and many Latinos voted for Trump. Why? Because the strict father morality is big in Latino culture. The campaign was not looking at values, they were looking at demographics. That's the Clinton campaign. They missed the role of values. Uh, name of his one of his books is "Don't Think of an Elephant," and the point, of course, is when they tell you not to think of an elephant, the first thing you're going to do is think of an elephant because you can't really control that. There's no way to not know. Um, they're missing in value. This is the part about union that's very interesting and healthcare. They're missing the idea that many Americans who depend on healthcare, for example, have strict father positions and voted for Trump against their interests. And this is something that's been known for ages, that a lot of poor conservatives vote against their material interests because they're voting for their worldview. And the reason for it is that their moral worldview defines who they are. They're not going to vote against their own definition of who they are. This is missed by the unions as well. Unions don't really understand their function. Unions are instruments of freedom. Unions free people from corporate servitude. From corporations saying what hours they can work, what wages are possible, and so on. The argument against unions has come in so-called right-to-work laws. They miss the fact that unions are instruments of freedom, and instead that unions go against freedom. They say they go against your rights, and the unions don't know how to argue against right-to-work laws. So that's a problem with liberals working in unions. Anyway, read the article. It's on uh, Alternet, and it's linguist George Lakoff. But this is absolutely true. Unions are instruments of human freedom. We don't make that article, which is an easy one to make, by the way. Not a hard, nothing, you know, complicated about explaining that. 
So uh, let's listen to one more Joan Baez song. And we, we played this one last week. This is about uh, uh, workers dying in a plane wreck. The crops are rolling and the lettuce is rotting. The oranges are piled in their creosote.
best way we can grow our good orchards Is this the best way we can grow our good fruit To fall like dry leaves and rot on your topsoil And be called by no name except deportees Italy, and it is one part of a three-part song that was written for the movie Sacco and Vanzetti. They were probably our most famous political prisoners in this country. We got the royal treatment, so to speak. <laughs> and all of the words are taken from letters from Vanzetti.
With me I have my love, my innocence, the workers and the poor. Rebellion, revolution, don't need dollars, they need this instead. Imagination, suffering, light, and love, and care for every human being. You never steal, you never kill, you are a part of hope and life. When I look at the stars That we are children of life Death is small Joan Baez, of course uh, singing a song made up entirely of um, words written by Bartolomeo Vanzetti while he was in prison. Most people, people believe uh, he and his um, friend Nicolo Sacco were railroaded by the government of Massachusetts. At any rate, that was his... He became very, even though he, he was a second language learner, he became very flu, fluid in English as a writer, which is even more difficult, perhaps, than learning the language, learning to speak the language. Um, the Ballad of Sacco and Vanzetti. And before that, we had... Uh, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. Um, we've worked this story over pretty well. The 35 people who were in a plane wreck, farm workers who had been deported in the 1930s, that when there were, or 40s, when there were mass, mass deportations of uh, Latinos, of mostly Mexicans and Mexican-Americans because uh, there was no work in the cities. So young white people, uh, white people in general, went into the country to do farm work. Many of them were farmers who had lost their own farms and had to go to work as hired help. And of course, they, the government decided that they should have that work and not the Mexicans and Asians who had, who had done it traditionally. So they deported millions of Mexicans, many of whom were citizens of the United States because they'd been born here. And so these people were being deported so whites could take their work. Okay, Joan Baez, and then we had Where's My Apple Pie? I guess we played that, I'm not sure. Where's My Apple Pie? About the uh, veterans and ve the Veterans Administration. Um, 
Baez was born in New York, um, and her father, Albert, uh, was from Mexico, um, and he, the, the family became Quaker. They converted to Quakerism during Joan's early childhood. Um, her parents just died recently, and her sister Mimi, who became a musician in her own right, uh, just recently, 2001, I think. Her father worked in healthcare in UNESCO. They moved uh, many times. And uh, she went to school in, Red, uh, in Palo Alto. Her aunt, when Baez was 13, her aunt and her aunt's boyfriend took her to a concert by folk musician Pete Seeger. And Baez found herself moved, strongly moved by his music. Uh, her first performance was in Saratoga, California uh, for a Redwood City Jewish congregation. Her family showed up and she was paid $10. Then her dad got a job teaching at MIT. Uh, the family moved to Massachusetts and then Baez became part of the whole folk revival, it was called, that was taking place on the East Coast and here on the West Coast as well in coffee houses kind of associated with uh, the beat movement, a, a return to the purer uh, motives and uh, cultural expressions than uh, the Hollywood or a stylized present presentation. Um, she met... Uh, Two folk singers named Bob Gibson and Odetta, um, an African-American folk singer and uh, uh, religious. She sang religious songs. Um, she performed with, um, with Odetta and Bob Gibson uh, at the Newport Folk Festival in 1959, and that kind of made her. The performance generated substantial praise for the barefoot Madonna with the otherworldly voice, and it was this appearance that led to Baez signing with Vanguard Records. Now, this is a time where folk music was very influential, especially among college students. Uh, like I said, kind of a return to uh, a more honest tradition, a, a less less commercial uh, expression, cultural expression, even though it made uh, lots of people lots of money, as I'm sure that uh, sure that always happens. Um, her first one was just called Joan Baez. Uh, it sold moderately well. 
She sang, I know she sang some child ballads, which are traditional um, English and Irish songs collected by uh, an anthropologist, an early anthropologist named Child, Francis Child. I, don't, I remember the memorable one from that was uh, Mary Hamilton about a mistress of uh, one of the high uh, noble families in uh, Scotland. Okay, so then Joan Baez number two went gold and uh, she was established. Uh, she's someone who's really stayed the course. She's been remarkably consistent in her opposition to war and her opposition to fascism. Uh, to me, it was a stroke of genius that she would go and sing Joe Hill at Woodstock. Everyone else was probably thinking about getting high and and uh, the flesh. I mean, so and you know, enjoying yourself. So, what? Nothing wrong with that, huh? Baez chose that moment to sing Ralph Chaplin's Joe Hill ballad because I think she understood that these were working-class kids who were out there at Woodstock. Of course, there were a lot of exceptions, but uh, amazing. She was prescient in that sense. So she went on um, and sort of invented a kind of a, you know, a long-haired hippie girl persona. People followed like Judy Collins and uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, even uh, Emmylou Harris. We can play an Emmylou song later on. We don't have much time later, but we'll try to play it. So yeah, that's Joan Baez. We found out this week that uh, eight billionaires eight billionaires uh own as much wealth as half of humanity. This is socialist worker. The gap between richest and poorest in the world is growing and is even worse than originally feared. According to a report by poverty charity Oxfam released today, eight people, yes, eight, own as much wealth as the poorest 50% of the world population. 3.7 billion human beings. A shocking statistic. Anyway, of course, the, uh, the apologists, the economists who are apologists for this kind of ridiculous, ridiculous distribution of wealth not really distributing distributing wealth at all huh distributing so little that uh, you can't really count it they say well people are paying too much attention people are paying too much attention to how much money the rich have instead of the poor getting more because uh if we have more business, it'll trickle down to the poor. Here we go again. Why do we believe this? Why do we believe this? Uh, ha Jun Chang, who's a 
uh, economics professor at the University of Cambridge says, once you realize that trickle-down economics does not work, and what better proof do we need than the widening gap between the wealth of the very few and the wealth of the very many? Once you realize that trickle-down economics does not work, you will see that excessive tax cuts for the rich as what they are. A simple upward redistribution of income rather than a way to make us all richer as we were told. Earlier on, I was playing some uh, Bernie Madoff. Madoff is sitting there in 2007 at a roundtable discussion pontificating on <laughs> capitalism and how and his uh, methods of using computers. Uh, let's see if we can listen to a little of that because at some point he declares it As Bill Haywood said, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. All it means is when you make money, when you make $47 billion, you're taking money away from all those people who aren't making it. That doesn't come out of nowhere. You're taking money away from someone else. Every dollar that a billionaire gets is a dollar that someone else doesn't get. Someone who might need it far more, who might need it simply to survive or stay alive or live with some dignity. But no. We're paying too much attention to how much the rich own. Right? All that money could be feeding people. In fact, a small, tiny fraction of it. What if every billionaire, person who's worth more than a billion dollars, gives, gives everything they have above one billion dollars, gives it to charities of their choice or to people they know Okay, give it, yeah, give them a tax break, whatever. A billion dollars, who needs more than that? Now, if you want to go ahead and keep making money, fine. Keep making money and, and let that money flow into public institutions that make us, uh, that will make us a great society, that we take care of our needy, by not, by taking away from those who have too much. In fact, it should be, they should be giving it. <laughs> but of course, if you're trained in capitalism and make your living in capitalism, you're not going to think that way. Eight billionaires. Okay, we've got uh, the first chapter today of uh, History of California Labor. One thing you can do to keep up your hopes and 
your good feel when times are tough like this. When, as we said, the fox is being inaugurated to to protect, is being hired to protect the hen house. And he's got a whole bunch of foxes with him. Let's listen now to some labor history. Remember, no time, at no time, has it ever been the case where there was not labor strife. Okay? I mean, that just built, seems like it's built in to the capitalist motto, to the capitalist ethic. It's a kind of an ethic in, of, uh, in and of itself. Let's see if we can find this now. play a little Bernie Madoff after he remember here now while he's pontificating he's stealing the modern stock market by Bernie Madoff oh no here we go we've got our labor history Thank you. 
In the 1860s, Charles Crocker hires 12,000 Chinese laborers to build the Central Pacific Railroad. They laid tracks east from Sacramento in a race to meet the Union Pacific with its Irish workforce coming west. Crocker is glad to be able to pay the Chinese workers less money than he pays whites. Better still, he boasts, there is no danger from strikes among them. The work, however, is dangerous. Primitive explosives take many lives. In one particularly frightening job, workers are lowered over cliffs in baskets. High above the ground, they plant dynamite, light the fuse, and hope they're lifted back to the top of the cliff before they're blown to bits. In the winter of 1866, record snows fall in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Rather than call a halt until better conditions return, Crocker orders the work to continue in tunnels 50 feet beneath the surface. His assistant tells Congress, The snow slides carried away our camps and we lost a good many men in those slides. Many of them we did not find until the next season when the snow melted. That spring, 5,000 Chinese workers go on strike. They want eight-hour days and to be paid the same as white workers. Crocker considers importing black strikebreakers from the East, but he figures out an easier solution. He surrounds the camps with armed guards. I stop the provisions on them, he brags. <laughs> Starving, they go back to work. The Transcontinental Railroad is completed in 1869. Before this picture is taken, Chinese workers are told to move aside. Then they are discharged. Some join the state's growing army of farm laborers. Thousands more drift to San Francisco, where they encounter another group of immigrants. Irish workers flocked to California after the gold rush, seeking escape from prejudice and stalled opportunities on the East Coast. They become the largest group of white immigrants in San Francisco and provide much of the muscle in constructing the new city. Not many jobs are open to women, who as late as 1860 are outnumbered in the general population by men nearly six to one. Most find work as domestics. Kate Kennedy follows another path. In the new San Francisco public schools, 57 of the 72 teachers are women. Some of the Irish transplants rise to prominence in the city's young labor movement. Alexander Kennedy, a printer, helps form the San Francisco Trades Union in 1863, the first council of unions in California. Kennedy becomes its president, starts up a labor newspaper, and leads a growing movement for a standard eight-hour workday. The need is clear. People are working 11 or 12 hours per day, six days a week. There's no such thing as a weekend. For bakers, who work 14 hours, seven days per week, there is just work. In 1867, thousands of workers strike and demonstrate for an eight-hour day. By the following year, with a strong economy and after continuous pressure by unions, the legislature passes the first statewide eight-hour law in the country. 
it is celebrated with a huge nighttime parade in San Francisco. This moment of strength for the new trade union movement does not last long. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad floods the state with cheap goods from back east, ruining California businesses. A severe national depression sends workers west. The eight-hour day is lost due to the number of hungry workers willing to work 10 or more. Things look mighty blue at present. No money, rent due, coal nearly out, little food in the house, and worst of all, no prospects ahead, either to pay what is due or to replace what is nearly out. In cigar making and garment production, shoe and boot making, Chinese and Irish workers compete directly for scarce jobs. White workers fault the Chinese for falling wages and exclude Chinese workers from their unions. They create labels to paste on their products calling for boycotts of Chinese-made goods and urge people to buy union-made products instead. Chinese become afraid to venture out of the Chinatown ghetto for fear of racist violence. In response to the conflict, Congress holds hearings in 1876 in San Francisco to investigate the impact of Chinese immigration on the economy. I am in favor of anybody making a living that possibly can. But I am a married man and have a family of four little children suffering here. Years ago, I could average $20 a week. My average wages for the last week is $14.89. I put in 14 hours a day. If a Chinaman has a mind to work for my firm, he gets employment and I have to compete with him. He offers to work for about one-third less the price I am working for now. In July of 1877, hundreds of thousands of railroad workers around the country go on strike, protesting wage cuts below subsistence level. A war breaks out. On one side, the railroads, assisted by police and National Guard. On the other, railroad workers, their families and communities, fed up with the power and arrogance of the railroad companies. Hundreds of workers are killed. The corporations sustain millions of dollars in damages. In San Francisco, Socialists call a meeting in solidarity with railroad workers in front of the unfinished city hall. 8,000 people peacefully hear speakers denounce the greedy railroad owners and call for an eight-hour day. But toward the end of the rally, an anti-Chinese group leads part of the crowd away, crying, On to Chinatown! This begins a three-day riot. One newspaper considers the events so extraordinary, its editor does something unheard of. He allows the words of a Chinese man to enter a new story. I was employed in Seasau's laundry. On Tuesday night, about half past ten o'clock, two Chinese boys who had been visiting the shop started out and saw a crowd of fifteen or twenty white men approaching. The Chinese boys ran back and gave the alarm. The front door was locked and we Chinamen started out the back door when we came upon two white men who had coal oil cans in their front door and were fired upon with pistols by the crowd in the street. There were about 15 white men there and more than 10 shots were fired. I did not see the deceased at the time. The rest of us ran away and hid in the bushes. 
We heard the white man breaking open boxes. The proprietor's chest in which he kept his money was in the house. In about half an hour after we escaped, we saw the house on fire. Governor William Irwin blames the violence on hoodlums, thieves, and communists. Although the riots end after three days, their underlying causes remain. Unemployment is high, wages low. San Francisco's immigrant workers see a stark contrast between their deteriorating condition and the huge fortunes of a few capitalists, such as Charles Crocker, owner of this mansion. The house gains notoriety when a small businessman who owns a little home adjacent to Crocker's refuses to sell his lot so that Crocker can expand his palace. Enraged, the capitalist orders his workmen to build a 40-foot high fence on three sides of the little lot. This becomes known as Crocker's Spite Fence. Ten weeks after the riots, the Workingmen's Party of California is formed. Its members are drawn from the ranks of immigrant workers as well as small business people fearing economic ruin. The party program calls for an eight-hour day, public works to employ the unemployed, taxing the rich, controlling the railroads, and free public education for all. It also calls for deportation of Chinese workers. Oh, California's coming down, as you can plainly see. They're hiring all the Chinamen and discharging you and me. There were long processions at night with big torchlights and lanterns carrying the slogan, the Chinese must go, and mass meetings where fiery tongues flayed the Chinese bogey. Dennis Kearney, an Irish immigrant and businessman wannabe, shoots to overnight fame with his rude but effective speeches in San Francisco sandlots. At a rally held on wealthy Knob Hill across the street from Crocker's spite fence, Kearney tells the workingmen's crowd, I will give the Central Pacific just three months to discharge their Chinamen. And if that is not done, Stanford and his crowd will have to take the consequences. When the Chinese question is settled, we can discuss whether it would be better to hang, shoot, or cut the capitalists to pieces. But not all party leaders are as racist or inflammatory as Kirin. I am not an advocate for the importation of the Chinamen here in droves, but I believe in the brotherhood of man. And I cannot believe that we have any right to exclude one race of people for the sake of building up another. Frank Roney is an iron molder and an exiled Irish revolutionary. For a time, he rivals Kearney in the workingmen's leadership. He and his followers want to steer the party toward trade union organization. For Roney, the anti-Chinese program of the party is brutal and such as no self-respecting people would dream of imposing upon the members of any race within their midst. The only objection to them that I felt had any validity was that they were cheap workers. The Workingmen's Party spreads throughout California. It elects dozens of officials to public office. In 1878, more than a third of the delegates elected to the state constitutional convention are from the Workingmen. But Roney, who by this time has been forced out of the party's leadership by Kearney, is not impressed by the party's participation in the convention. The majority of the working men's delegates studied fundamental law and what was best for their constituents in nearby saloons and played cards with a nourishing glass of foam-topped beer. Within a few years, the party collapses. 
Its major legacy is organized race hatred, bearing bitter fruit in the Federal Anti-Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Even after the end of Chinese immigration, white workers continue to blame Chinese workers each time the economy dives. Although Anna Smith asks, Why is the condition of working people in the East, where there are no Chinamen, worse than it is here? Years later, Frank Roney recalled, I took as active a part as I could to make the party as robust and as progressive as the times and circumstances permitted. It was essentially an anti-Chinese party. However, I never warmed to that feature of the agitation. Instead, after leaving the party, Roney seeks to expand working-class power by coordinating union efforts. His new organization, the Trades Assembly, stabilizes the city's labor movement. With it, workers carry their vision of the eight-hour day into the next decade. It's a mighty hard road that our poor hand has pulled, and our poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. Okay, that was uh, chapter one of Fred Glass's uh, History of the California Labor Movement. It's called Golden Lands, Working Hands. I urge you, if you, you haven't seen it, to... Um, been on uh, PB uh, workmanlike, let's put it. I think of all the work that went into it. It's about three hours long, but it's broken into segments in case you're a teacher. It's perfect for uh, a class to watch a little segment over a period of time, every day over a period of time. Um, if you're just a California working person or not a working person, you're interested in labor history. Check it out, Cal Golden Lands Working Hands. Uh, call CFT or C at CFT.org. Um, the CFT number. Let's see if I can get it up here. If my phone decides to behave. Hmm. CFT.org. Um, just look it up. The office is in Oakland on 14th Street, I believe. Golden Lands Working Hands. This is the B, and it's about time to get out of here. As always, I've got more stuff to <laughs> mention than I have time, but... Uh, Good weekend, good work. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. That's why we care that eight billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom half of the world's population. Because if the billionaires got it, that means the needy don't got it. This is the B. Good weekend, good work. Hope to see you this afternoon at the demonstration. Okay.
Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. This is Tusha Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station that rule the nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. Yeah. awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's Performance Space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Oh. 
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. The second annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is coming March 1st through 5th, 2017 to San Francisco, featuring 25 shows in five days and 50 comedians from across the entire U.S. From Washington and Portland to Los Angeles, New York to Indiana, Tennessee to Pennsylvania, these comics will join San Francisco's best underground comedians for five days of comedy at Mutiny Radio. All shows will be live streaming and available after via podcast at www.mutinyradio.fm. But see them live in our intimate 30-seat performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Mission, March 1st through 5th. Tickets available on our website, www.mutinyradio.fm now. Brought to you by our generous festival sponsors, Alta California Botanicals, Destiny's Mom, What a Tomato Produce Company, the law offices of John P. Strauss III, Asiento, FruFruHot.com, Jankytown.org, Brooke Heineken, Pervert Fervor, and Trina Roderick. Asiento. This locally owned Mission neighborhood bar and restaurant is excited to be a sponsor for the festival. We hope you'll join us any night of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival for happy hour pricing all night long. Just mention that you are an audience member for happy hour pricing March 1st through the 5th at Asiento. Our address is 2730 21st Street at Bryant Street, just a half a block away from Mutiny Radio. Asiento has a warm, friendly neighborhood vibe that's perfect for an after-work drink or for a night out. Featuring a comfortable bar and extensive tapas menu, this is the perfect place for groups that want to get together for drinks and food. Join us at Asiento. Whoa there. What a tomato! Where did you find such a nice tomato? What a tomato? I know, I just said that. Where'd you get that fine heirloom? What a tomato. Look, man, this isn't a come on. Just tell me where you got that beautiful tomato. 
What a tomato. No, no, seriously. I actually want to eat a tomato. I love tomatoes. Where did you get that tomato? What a tomato. Dude, it's a fine, beautiful tomato. I want to eat one too. I want one right now. I like to eat them like an apple with salt. Tell me, where'd you get the tomato? What a tomato. Are you high? Just tell me where I can find a tomato like that. What a tomato. Is this a metaphor? What a Tomato Produce Company in San Francisco. For all your wholesale produce needs, 2055 Jared Avenue. Hope your legs are looking sexy, because we're going to charm your pants off. Come to the Charm Offensive Comedy Show at Punchline San Francisco. It's a night of great jokes, magnetic personalities, featuring the Bay Area's most awarded comedians, plus national headliners. You'll laugh. You'll swoon. And when